Welcome to On Air with Legacy Theatre, where you can take theatre with you wherever you go. Brought to you by LegacyTheatreCT.org. Hello and welcome. My name is Stephanie Williams and it is my pleasure to be doing today's interview. It's my first interview that I've conducted, but it is with somebody who's very special to me. Paul Elkin is a musical theatre veteran with Broadway credits that had him singing, dancing and acting with luminaries of the stage and screen like Ann Miller, Mickey Rooney, Lauren Bacall, Cheetah Rivera, and Imogene Coco. He has performed in nightclubs and at casinos, both as a solo artist and also alongside people that you may have heard of like Sammy Davis Jr., Joan Rivers, Ben Vereen, and Jennifer Holliday. After years of performing, Paul transitioned to the role of teacher and voice coach where he has utilized his training in the Italian style of bel canto singing and his understanding of the mechanics of the instrument of the human voice is just invaluable when he trains singers of all levels, styles and ages. His students include a list of Broadway performers too numerous to mention film and TV stars, opera professionals, pageant contestants, and regular folk who just have a passion for singing. Paul has been my voice teacher for over 30 years. That's a terrifying number. And he has been one of my dearest, dearest friends for that long as well. So when Face to Face decided to interview him, I jumped at the chance to do it. So please welcome Paul Elkin. Hi, honey. Hi, Steph. How you doing? Great. Thank you so much for doing this with us today. This is going to be a very strange thing for us to be speaking conversationally in such a serious and professional manner, because we never. normally laugh all the time. It never happens. <laughs> so welcome. And let's just start off with the obvious, the beginning. Uh, you're a New Haven boy, correct? Yes. Yes. So so tell us where you uh, began as far as performing. Did you have lessons or dance, voice? How did that work? When I was uh, seven years old, I decided I wanted to play the piano. My mom played the piano. And I thought that would be uh, just a fabulous way to live your life with music around you. So I started taking with a woman, Dorothy Marquette in West Haven, Connecticut, your hometown. My hometown. And uh, I studied piano. Uh, through my grammar school, junior high school years. And then I started doing musical theater. And then my love switched from being a pianist to being a singer and an actor and a dancer. So I started voice lessons with the maestro Francesco Riggio, uh, who did all the operas at the Schubert Theater. And he and his wife, Hilda Riggio, ran the Connecticut Experimental Theater. Um, a lot of people came out of there. One notable one would be June Anderson um who ended up at the metropolitan opera uh and uh myself went on to broadway uh through my high school years i also studied acting with constance welch who started the yale acting school and uh, she was her expertise was shakespeare and so i studied privately with her since i was well, around the age of 14 i started and as well as doing that with her i would travel into new york and study with lee strasberg at the actor's studio and uh, back then, going into New York at 14 years old was not considered an unsafe thing to do. 
<laughs> and my parents would just take me down to the train station and off I'd go and I'd spend the day in New York City doing dance classes and acting. Uh, and then uh, when I went to college, I went to Boston Conservatory of Music as an opera major. And uh, I decided midway that I wanted to go into musical theater and I switched my degree to Southern Connecticut University and I minored in music at that point and majored in theater and speech uh, as an also a, as a minor, so I had a double minor. Uh, and then off to New York I went and had my first Broadway show audition, which was Whoopi, which started at Goodspeed Opera House. And uh, then off to Broadway with that. Um, following that, I ended up landing uh, Sugar Babies with Ann Miller and Mickey Rooney, and then um, Woman of the Year with Lauren Bacall, Chicago with Cheetah Rivera. Um, I did some of them on Broadway and tour, some just Broadway, some just tour, uh, but it was, it was very exciting and a uh, wonderful career. Well, it's just fascinating, and I learned something I didn't know about the Lee Strasberg connection so that's fascinating and so you kind of did the whole um move to new york be a bartender while trying to make it type yes. thing didn't you yes yes i used to work for a catering service uh back then what you did was you tried to find jobs that you know you could do part-time between gigs um and i would always go and uh, do the ships out of south street seaport on the weekends when i wasn't working and uh, make some good pocket money, which would pay the rent and keep you in your classes, your voice lessons, your dance lessons, your acting lessons, uh, buy your wardrobe that you needed for auditions. Uh, it's interesting what you're willing to do when there's nothing else you want to do with your life. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that. That really shows um, a, a level of um, determination that you're, you know, you could have done other things. You could have gotten a job doing something that paid better or that was more reliable, something more predictable. But it, it's one of those things that when you love to perform and you have a passion for performing, you're going to find a way to do it. And everything else is just a, a means to an end. Absolutely. And I, I think the main thing for my generation was um, my teachers, the maestro and Hilda Riggio, they didn't encourage myself to do, to do this. Um, they were more they want you to take the safer route, uh, become a doctor, become a lawyer, whatever. Um, but I was so determined to do it that there, there was no question in my mind that this is what I had to do with my life at that time. You know, I look back now and I think that sometimes ignorance is bliss. Um, <laughs> and I look at all the things that I, I places I had to live, uh, jobs that I, I, I uh, took jobs selling toys for Parker Brothers. Um, just, you know, all these little things you do just so that you can afford a little hole in the wall in Hell's Kitchen. My first apartment had, a, a, the lock was missing and it was, it was in Hell's Kitchen, which was not a, a great area back then. Now it's been revitalized, but, um, I remember when I got the apartment, it was like a hundred dollars a month, believe it or not. And uh, I walked in and the lock was missing and there was a big hole and the tub was in the middle of the living room, <laughs> right in front of the hole. <laughs> so that was my first apartment in New York City. And I lived there for about six months. And I remember stuffing rags in the hole. So. <laughs> <laughs> An extra's life for me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. So I imagine that taught you a lot about yourself and about your your ability to to 
survive and your your spirit of determination and uh, and things like that and i think that that's a that's a, a a really important thing for people to understand that uh you know it seems like acting is just such a fun wonderful thing and it is it's a wonderful way to express yes. yourself but you learn a lot about yourself by what you're willing to do yeah and i i think that uh one of the hardest things about the business is there's always rejection, you know, but that's part of the business and that's how you have to look at it. Uh, you can't look at it at, you can't take it so personal, even though it is because you are the product, but it really is part of the business and you, you get things and you don't get things, you know, uh, that's just how it works. And you'd learn to uh, let that roll off your back and just keep pushing forward. Um, you got to keep your eye on the prize and make, if you can make your living in this business and work consistently, you're a success. Well, that's a, a very important uh, aspect of the whole business that there is rejection every day. Mm -hmm. And um, then there are times when you, you know, get performances where people are pleased and proud and you get standing ovations. And there are other times when people just aren't so impressed and you don't even get the job. Yeah, and what's interesting is that a lot of people don't realize, especially with the way the business is now, with all of the ch TV channels and uh, all the shows that are on TV and movies and all the different aspects of earning a living in the theatrical community, people can earn their living of uh, huge amounts of money being a hand model. Um, <laughs> And it's the truth. Uh, I have friends that actually raised their kids, put them through college, and that's what they. But that's what he did. He was a hand model, you know, a wow. very successful one. Um, but it is a way. There's so many ways to earn money in this business now that people don't even think about. True. So, Paul, you are what is referred to in the biz as a triple threat. Um, you are proficient and talented in dance, in singing, in acting, and that. That's pretty rare uh, to be able to do that and then to be able to make a living at it as you did. But I would like to say that you're a quadruple threat because you also have this fabulous ability to teach voice and to be able to share uh, technique and um, ideas with people who are trying to learn it. And I think a lot of people think that if you can sing, mm -hmm. well, then you must be able to teach. And uh, I can sing. I wouldn't even know where to begin to teach someone. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what's important to be able to take with you being a performer and then becoming a teacher? Well, teaching is not for everybody. It definitely is a, has to be a labor of love. Uh, I never taught because I couldn't perform. I decided to become a full-time teacher when I was doing Woman of the Year with Lauren Bacall. Uh, and I made the decision at that point to stop performing and switch hats. Um, people who teach just to make a living, you know, it, it's it's got to be in your genes to really want to be in that process because mm -hmm. um, it's not about you anymore. Um, when I went to Boston Conservatory, I had the pleasure of playing because of my piano background for many of the voice teachers there uh, as a substitute pianist. A lot of the voice teachers didn't play the piano. Um, so I would step in and be the accompanist. So I got to observe a lot of different teachers at the conservatory when I was there. Uh, when I left the conservatory, I had friends of mine that were in the shows with me who would say, 
could you help me with this song? Little by little over the years, I ended up having a dozen students or so in New York that were professional Broadway people. So I didn't start teaching beginners. I started the opposite way. Mm -hmm. I started teaching Broadway people. And then when I moved to Connecticut, I started teaching more younger beginning students. Um, so that really taught me how to teach the professional. Uh, and I had to kind of modify that a little bit when I became a teacher in Connecticut because all of a sudden I was teaching people from the ground up instead of from the top down. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a very different approach when you're building a voice uh, as opposed to just coaching a voice that's already been established by a, you know, a professional singer. Um, I think that uh, the thing that has helped me the most probably is that I've studied with many different teachers in my life and I don't teach people to sing the way that I sing because I have a lot to pull from. Um, and I think that's also important. Uh, I think that people who make the better teachers are teachers that have learned to sing and developed their voice as opposed to someone who's born with a gifted instrument and that's all they have. Because a lot of times when people are just so gifted that things come naturally to them, a lot of times they don't really know how they got there, it just was there if that makes any sense to you. Uh, Absolutely, sure. Uh, and then there are other people who learn to do all of that stuff. They develop it. It's amazing how a, a nice instrument can become pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And uh, an extraordinary instrument can be also ruined, on the other hand. Uh, I've seen it go both ways with people and fellow performers. Um, you know, that, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, uh, as I said in my introduction, I've been studying with you since 1988. And, um, makes me feel old. Yeah, it makes me feel old too. So there we go. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that I had studied with other voice teachers before, um, and one of the things that really worked for me with you and why one of the reasons we clicked, we clicked for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was that you were able to take um, sometimes abstract ideas um, and figure out a way to communicate to me how to take those abstract ideas and make them work for my voice. And it's not the same teaching uh, a classical singer as a pop singer, as a musical theater person. It's not the same teaching a woman or teaching a man, but you're always able to adjust to your students and to figure out ways to make it click for them. And it always did for me, um, you know, sometimes it would just be silly images like, well, you know, pretend you have hot potatoes in your mouth when you're done. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, or, or, that, or that you have a hole in the top of your head and you're trying to shoot the air through that. That might not work for one student. It worked for me a lot. But right. if it didn't work for one student, you'd figure out a way to, to make it make sense for them. So that's super important. And also uh, understanding the mechanics of the voice and how the vocal cords work and everything like that. I think that is kind of speaks to what you were saying about not ruining a good instrument. Okay, yes, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's an interesting, um, profession if you really do a lot of reading and working with different people as I said before I believe if I remember correctly there's 200 some odd ligaments and muscles that make up the laryngeal system okay uh, and if you think about that that's pretty um, 
amazing that we learn to control this through imagery, a lot of it through imagery. Um, I find that you can manipulate a little bit uh, physically, but mm -hmm. I find that the best way is if you have uh, sense memory, sensation, imagery. Uh, when I was at the uh, Medical University of South Carolina, I took a course called Medicine and the Vocal Arts. Uh -huh. And uh, it was interesting listening to the speech therapists and the um, doctors meet with us voice teachers. And a lot of the stuff we would talk about, they would be like, uh, how do you do that? What does that mean? You know, when they would actually talk about the scientific, you know, the hyoid bone, which is the tongue, which hooks to the larynx, tongue, hyoid bone, larynx. They would talk about all that physical stuff, which is really difficult to produce a artistically beautiful sound if you're trying to control your hyoid bone. Um, uh, that's just crazy stuff, you know, that you, it, that is, it exists, it is there, they understand it. Um, but a lot of times when you start to talk about mask placement, uh, tinges of nasality, the oral pharynx, the main resonator, things like that, when you point around, most intuitive singers with a good musical aptitude can find their way with that. And, and little things, uh, imagery to me is, is the way I was taught by the bel canto school. Um, and I, I find that to be the most efficient for me and the, less, the least manipulative. Um, I find that if it's too much manipulation, I think you can cause damage and problems to the voice. Too much, um, too much tension gets into it. Well, about the bel canto school, what what does that mean? What is bel canto singing, and why is it important to use even if you're not a classical singer? Well, bel canto really only just means beautiful singing. That's what it means. Um, I think that when the, the bel canto school, you have the five vowels in Italian, they're pure vowels. Um, some of our greatest composers are the Italian composers. Um, and I think that when you teach the, that Italian method where you are on these pure vowels, it's easier to have less craziness going on in the throat. English is one of the hardest languages to sing in. We have all the diphthongs. Um, and I, I always, when I work in English, I either Italianize it or I make it a little bit more British, sort of neutralize it and get the vowels to line up a little bit better. Italian, like I said, is the best language for that and that's what they're known for. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to other languages like the German and, and uh, the French, the French is wonderful because you have this almost natural masky nasality in the sound when you speak, which of course, once again, you Italianize French to get it so that it's not so nasal when you sing French opera. Um, and the same thing with German. Uh, I cannot tell you how many teachers, when I studied the German repertoire, that they would say to me, Italianize, Italianize, Italianize. It's too guttural. Um, mm -hmm. It's too dark, too far back in the throat. Uh, larynx is pressed too low. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all these little things you learn along the way that you bring to the table as a voice teacher. So even if you're not singing a classical repertoire, it's important to understand. Yes. And, I, and for, for what, for the, as far as the Italian thing goes, uh, bel canto, almost every teacher of every language goes back to that mm -hmm. as their as their um, role, the, the model of ideal vocal production. Mm -hmm. Italianize. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say to Italianize and think Italian. Sometimes I hear a rock singer or a pop singer and I can tell that they've studied classically. Even if it doesn't sound at all like a classical sound, you can tell by the way they approach their notes and yes. attack their singing that they're, they're, they know how to not hurt their voice. Yes, well, because when you when you actually study technique, 
you're working on the highs, the lows, the fast, the slows, the louds, the softs. That's really all, that's the whole ball of wax there. And there is nowhere else other than the classical school of singing that you actually use your whole body as an amplifier. Uh, when you are a musical theater, nightclub, you're usually mic'd now, especially nowadays, almost everything is mic'd. Yeah. So you teach, you've taught for, for many years, and now there's a pandemic. So how do you continue to teach voice where you're, you know, breathing in the other person's direction? Uh, how does that work? How did, what did you have to do to adapt? Number one, buy a new computer. <laughs> Number one, buy a new computer. Mic system, I put a bass underneath it. Uh, it, it totally uh, changed everything I do in teaching as far as um, not having the student here one-on-one. -on -one. You can't touch them. You know, uh, you're, you're, everything is very focused this way and in some ways more focused, I think, because we're right in each other's face. Um, Sound was the hardest thing. That's why I said I had to add the mics, the bass. Because uh, at first when I did it with just the computer, it was distorted. It sounded tinny, it sounded a little bit hollow. Um, the first two months of the pandemic, I refused to teach because I said, this is just not gonna work because I remember the old Skype mm -hmm. and it just, it, uh, the, the lags, how do you do that with music? You know, you right. really can't. Not to mention the fact that the sound isn't necessarily true. Right. But once I upgraded everything, after a couple of months realizing that I wasn't going to be able to teach for even longer uh, if I didn't figure out how to do this, um, I found it actually becoming, it's become very efficient. And um, all of my students actually saved the time of driving, which is... I love it. <laughs> I know. Well, you're a Guilford. I'm in Norwalk. So, right. Uh, yeah, so they, they all love the fact that they can just walk into their bedroom, click on the computer, and take their voice lesson. Um, I have found that uh, because I play the piano, uh, I've learned to just record everything as we go, either before the lesson, during the lesson, or after the lesson. I send it to the student, and we run it. Uh, that's the biggest drawback, I think, is that they have to have the music on their side. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it's out of sync. Uh, so every now and then, we'll, I'll run into an issue, like if, if someone's doing aria with class, uh, classical cadenzas, um, difficult phrasing. Sometimes that's hard because you're trying to show them on one end with the piano mm -hmm. and they want to sing it with you and they have to do it a cappella, or I have to record it and send it one or the other. Right. So that sometimes makes the lesson a little bit awkward. Um, but no, actually it's worked out quite well. And I find that uh, it's almost more intense because everything seems magnified mm -hmm. from the screen and from the sound. Uh, and in some ways I think even more accurate. Well, it, it certainly works for me to be able to to sing with you virtually because I, you know, you are a good hour's drive from me and, you know, we haven't had lessons in a long time until I, you know, said a few months ago, I'm getting out of shape. I, I got to go back to Paul. So. Well, and well, the other interesting thing about Zoom is, I don't know if other teachers notice this or not, but I find that some of the uh, the negative things, the flaws, the things that aren't quite as accurate as they could be in the voice, they get magnified on Zoom. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't know if everyone everyone that teaches voice notices that, but I do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that in that way, a pitch, for example, has to be so on the money. Otherwise, it just it seems to pick up the bad things yeah. more than the good things. Right. Makes sense. So... I think that one of the things that the pandemic has taught everyone um, is that 
the arts are important in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And um, you didn't realize it perhaps until you weren't able to sing. You weren't able to go to a movie. You weren't able to, to enjoy performances outside your home. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we look forward to emphasizing at Legacy. But um, I think that it's important for people to realize that even if it's not your profession, it's something that is still fulfilling. Um, now, in your family, I know that there, you know, you, you come from a large family, a musical family. Um, your sister, Sandy, is a fabulous coloratura soprano. And I've performed with her, but she just does things mostly locally. And she's a hospital administrator as a, as a profession. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, you have your cousin, your distant cousin, Michael Bolton, that you grew up with. And he was- And his, and his name was Bolton. Not Bolton. Bolton, Michael Bolton. Yeah, we lived- You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we lived across the street from each other and we were in the same class. We'd walk to Beecher School together in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people don't realize his name was Bloaton, not Bolton. I didn't. I didn't. No. But, uh, you know, there you are in your family. You have people pursuing, you know, more pop music. You have people pursuing Broadway, theater, and opera. You have people who just do it for the love of singing and have different types of careers. And that's what, you know, being involved in the arts is all about. It's having an outlet. Sure. And uh, that's yeah. one of the things that's great about being able to, to, to study voice with you, because even if you're not performing regularly or you never perform, it's just being able to work well, your instrument. Well, I, my sister has worked at Yale, Sandy, for 30 years, and, and she's actually more of a lyric soprano, but she does do some oh. coloratura work. That's why I think you think of her that way. I do. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah but she does do quite a bit of that, but she, she's more of a lyric. But uh, she uh, has always said to me uh, that people that she works at Yale and she keeps her singing going because she wants to eat. <laughs> That's what she always says. Uh, she says, "I like to eat," you know. Yeah. Uh, because the, the, it's it's not a predictable business. So uh, I think most people um, that take voice lessons, especially in, in Connecticut, they are either a very serious church singer or a music teacher, or they just love to sing for fun. Um, most of them I find the majority are pursuing it. You get a handful that do, that pursue it really. Um, but music is such a um, healthy outlet. Oh yeah. For everybody. Yeah. Whatever level you're, you're, you're looking at, you know, at, so. Yeah. I would, I would agree with you that most people that do do it are, are doing it for their enjoyment. Yeah. And you get to sing in, in your everyday life when you're singing, you know, with and for your students and um, in, in other outlets as well. Do you miss performing eight shows a week? Uh, you know, that part of it, uh, I do miss that. I do not miss the uh, auditions and the callbacks and the waiting in Central Park because I have a callback in two hours and not enough time to get back to my apartment. So you sit outside or if it's raining, you got to go sit in a diner somewhere. I don't miss all of that because uh, that's the stuff that I know you've experienced because you were, you auditioned in New York quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it is a, they, when they say pounding the pavement, that's truly what it is, you know, and that that's never changed. I would say the thing about the business now that's changed since I was doing it is 
more people pursue it professionally because their families, parents are more enthusiastic over the idea of it for their children and more supportive of it. I think when my generation, it was something that someone else's kids did. Mm -hmm. uh, most people didn't ever encourage their kids to go into the business. Um, so I think in, in one way, it's more competitive now even. You know, not that it wasn't competitive when I did it, but sure. I think it's more now, you know? Yeah. I remember back then, if I went to a, a call with 800 guys competing for one role, um, I think that same call today would probably be 2,000, oh. 2,000, you know, uh, from what my students have told me about the, you know, how, how busy it gets in New York City at Actors' Equity. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just multiplied in that way, the competitive way. But then on the other hand, there's more opportunity nowadays. Yeah. Well, like you said, and you can always be a hand model, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, your studio now is in Norwalk. If somebody wants to uh, study with you or wants to find out more, what is your website? Paul Elkin Voco Studio in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, Silver Mine, to be exact. It's a historic community in Norwalk. And uh, they could go on, on the uh, internet and find me, and my contact information is there. I, I think that this has been great, and it's been so fun to, to chat with you. Is there anything yeah. you want to make sure we include? Something that you, your last words? <laughs> <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> no, uh, no, this was fun, Steph. A lot of fun. Yeah, thank, you for, thank, you for, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Love you so much. Thank you for listening to On Air with Legacy Theatre. And thank you to Brad Ross for the theme music. You can follow us at LegacyTheatreCT.org.